You're listening to the Alan Gray Podcast. I am CPC Lezwane, a Senior Investment Analyst at Alan Gray, and your host for this episode. This year, Alan Gray is celebrating 50 years of long-term investing. Over the last five decades, we have always put our clients' interests before our own, and we would like to thank you for placing your trust in us. While our approach to investing has remained consistent over the last 50 years, the investment landscape has become increasingly dynamic. As economic variables shift, inevitably, companies and sometimes even entire sectors fall in and out of favor. I am joined by my colleagues, portfolio manager Jacques Plaut and senior analyst Peter Kuanov to discuss some of the winners and losers over the last few years. We'll unpack many of the trends, discuss how the market is being shaped by South Africa's challenges, and share how our consistent process has helped us navigate this environment. Maybe to start with you, um, Jacques, I think this is your first podcast so far. So one of the more interesting backgrounds in the team, or at least academic backgrounds, you studied music and maths. I mean, how do you get from a, a background of Bach and, and a pool to balance sheets and share charts? I mean, how did you make that move? That's correct. I did start off music and maths. I, I, I switched from music to maths quite quickly after only one year at university. And then all the good jobs were in corporate and an academic career wasn't really on the cards for me. So my first job was up in Joburg in consulting. And I must say, I really did not enjoy that at all. <laughs> But I, I was good friends with the guy in my Bible study who introduced me to Warren Buffett. He gave me books to read, and I was hooked. From the moment I knew there was a job like investing, this, that's what I wanted to do. Thank you to Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> and for you, Peter, I guess you, you've been here 10 years, um, came in as a CA trainee. You cover a lot of the other listed asset managers. I mean, in your opinion, I think in, in all your experience, having seen the business in more elements, I guess, as a CA trainee. What do you think makes for a good asset manager? I mean, Alan Gray is turning 50, we're as old as hip-hop. So what do you think makes for a good asset manager um, in your experience? So I think there are three things that are really key if you want to be a good asset manager, and especially if you want to do it over the long term, if you want to stand the test of time. So the first one is having a consistent investment philosophy and process. And at Alan Gray, I think we're fortunate we've got policy group reports on companies going back 40, 50 years, which we can access. It's incredible how true we've stayed to our philosophy and our process over the last 50 years. So obviously you try and refine it, but I think that consistency has been very important. I think the second key thing is culture. So we have a really good culture on the investment team where there are very, very robust debates, but you're, you're always playing the ball, not the person. So very, very strong disagreements, very, very tough arguments, but it's always in a very respectful and incisive manner. And I think that's key to making good decisions. So I think the third key point is being privately owned and, and having long-term shareholders. And I think that affords you the opportunity to invest very differently, invest in a very contrarian way. And, and, and I think that's essential to, in order to generate superior long-term returns for clients over time. And, you know, some listed asset managers do really well, and that's possible. But I, I think for Alan Gray, and it's, it's been a big advantage to be privately owned, where we can afford to take a long-term view. You can afford to be very, very contrarian, look very different from the market. And for sure, you come under pressure in the short term there. 
And I think that's what's necessary in order to generate good long-term performance. Mm. Respectfully, I'll have to agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe in talking about the recent winners and losers, I think one cannot avoid talking about the big corporate failures and how those have turned out. Jacques, you, you covered Steinoff, which we didn't have a very big position in. And I mean, in reading back your reports, we're very skeptical about, to say the least. What do you think, I mean, that, that and other corporate failures, what are some of the things that, that we picked up or that we looked for to make the decision not to buy that, even though the, the share had outperformed the market for quite a while? The fact that it had outperformed made us look even closer, I guess. So with Steinoff, this is all very clear with the benefit of hindsight. But the joy was tempered a bit in the, by the fact that we did have a small position in the stock. And we had actually been buying in the months up to everything going wrong for the company. And we were always thinking in terms of weighted probability outcomes, right? And there was some universe in our minds in which the orange lights we saw in the accounting were just that, you know, they were orange and not red, and things would work out fine. So we were scrambling even after the company announcement to work out, you know, how much has our intrinsic value changed? And there were times when we were we were buying little bits, but fortunately, we always had a very large underweight position in the stock. When we discuss a stock, in addition to putting a buy or a sell on the share, we also put a star rating on the stock, which is an indication of how risky the company is, and a lower star rating limits the position percentage of fund that can be in the share. Okay, so with Steinoff, a couple of the things were the accounts were very opaque, and they did strange things like buy companies on the last day of the financial year. And they were always changing around divisions. There were lots of divisions, which you really don't know what's happening here. The acquisition of Mattress Firm was just very strange. That company didn't make a lot of free cash flow. The US mattress space seemed very overtraded. And then, yes, just some of the notes didn't make sense to me. It was a very story-driven stock. So it felt like they were trying to like deflect attention from the numbers to oh, but look at our European property portfolio. And there's no audited number available, but they, they throw out something. So those are a few of the things I remember. Mm. A nice anecdote I have was my, my first day of, of work at Allen Gray was on the 4th of December, 2017. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think what, when the news came out on the 5th, I think. It came oh. out on the 4th. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the sense came out at 8.35. And what happens here at Allen Gray, when you start working, your boss comes to pick you up downstairs. So, so my boss was Andrew Lapping, the, the CIO at the time, Chief Investment Officer. And when he came down, he had a little bit of a smile on his face. So I asked him, like, are you always this happy? <laughs> like, every Monday is just how happy you are. And you could just see it's that satisfaction of, of being proven right after taking on the pressure of being wrong for quite a while. And I think it's the ownership structure that, that allows you to take that uncomfortable pain. But it's that, that feeling of satisfaction um, when you're proven right is very valuable. Maybe a bit of some, some of the other shares that did incredibly well for a long time, I guess, coming into, let's say, 2018. Property was a big one, I guess. Not exactly corporate failures, but a lot of unsustainability there or things that didn't make sense. I mean, can you talk to some of the orange flags maybe that we saw there? That was also a very painful position for us for a very long time. So so at Allen Gray, we were underweight property for a very, very long time, sort of from the early 2010s all the way to probably peaked about 2018, 2019. There were always a lot of orange flags that we we had with the sector, and some of that was very, very blatant financial engineering. So so companies were using derivatives and very, very opaque structures in order to artificially increase their earnings. 
I think the other thing that a lot of the companies were doing were they were typically issuing shares and paying out earnings in excess of the cash that they were actually generating and also funding a lot of that using debt. And we didn't see that as a, as a sustainable way of running a business. For a long time, I thought the property companies were over-earning. And I guess the, the other point there was uh, starting valuations. So sort of, you know, if, if you're a property company and you're trading at a very big premium to the value of your underlying assets, and then the market is basically pricing in high growth and high growth and that continuing for a long time into the future. And so, so we looked at a lot of these various factors and then just came to the conclusion that there, there isn't a lot of margin of safety here. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, it was the right call to be underweight property. And this sector unraveled spectacularly after 2018. Some of it obviously was made worse by COVID, which, mm. which we didn't see coming. But even before that, the industry was taking on a, a large amount of pain. But for the years leading up to it, you feel very silly. Because yeah, we came you... to this conclusion in like, what, 2012 or 13? <laughs> yeah. You know, different members of the team at different <clears throat> times. So five years later, at least. Yes. And those are painful five years because yeah. you, you suddenly go, okay, is there, are we missing something? And then again, it, it feels quite vindicating to, to be proven right in the end. But then this being Alan Gray, the, the, the very next day, you're like, okay, well, it's fallen a lot now. Is there value? <laughs> so you sharpen your pencil and you, you do more analysis to see, okay, is this a good entry point? So yeah, just... when this happens, it's not like you can sit back and be yeah. like, ah, oh, fantastic, we were right. <laughs> because there's always the chance that actually, no, now they're cheap and you should be <laughs> buying it or you're going to underperform from this point onwards. It's similar with Steinoff, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it seems so clear now, but when it was all happening, it wasn't clear at all. The initial announcements were kind of a bit vague, mm. we were scrambling to say, or oh, should we be buying the stock now that it's down 50%? It, it was still a tough time, actually. If you take 2018 as a point and look at the shares that have done the worst, maybe that's a bit of a hunting ground. So <laughs> you roll forward a few years and there's very few actually that end up doing the best from the ones that did the worst. One that I think was interesting was Impala. So I think around 2018, there was a courtly commentary that Andrew again wrote. And I think the title was if you like pain, try the platinum sector. <laughs> Very uncomfortable position to hold. Maybe, Peter, can you talk to us about the platinum sector and, and I guess what was going wrong and, and how that managed to turn? Because I guess Impala went from being one of the worst performers going into 2018 to yeah. a spectacular share to own, probably a once-in-a-generation share to own. Well, actually, I want to jump in here. So <laughs> in, in April 2018, Peter sent out a, something called an MMI, a money-making idea, which is we encourage the analysts to send out these, these to the portfolio managers when they have an idea for us to make money, right? Is there a share you think we should be buying or selling? And Peter sent one on Amplats when the, the share price was 300 Rand a share. And this must be one of the best money-making ideas in the history of Alan Gray. And I still remember reading it. I still remember agreeing with the note mm. and I didn't go buy the share. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of my big regrets. It could have made a huge difference. And the reason is, I was so full of the other platinum companies, mm -hmm. uh, Implats and the Zambezi Pref shares, I guess to sort of double the pain. I mean, I was right on those, but then I saw them way too early when they started going up. Sorry, you had a question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess turning to where the platinum sector was in, in 2018. So I think the important thing to remember with mining is it's a very long cycle mm -hmm. industry. So, so if you want to bring a new mine online, it, it takes anything from five to 10 years or even longer. So 
part of where the platinum sector was in 2018 is a function of where it was in 2008. So at that stage, you know, platinum and platinum group metal prices were very high. And there was a lot of investment and exuberance going into, into the industry. So they were spending a lot of capital adding production and, you know, as, as sort of demand came under pressure and that new supply came online and as costs grew, the, the profitability of the sector tanked. And, and it was a brutal, brutal sector to be in for a number of years, sort of from 2012, 13 onwards. And the bottom was close to 2018. I, I remember going to the mining in Daba in 2018 and there was a, there was a meeting amongst the, the CEOs of all the platinum miners. And there were more CEOs there than analysts <laughs> attending the meeting, which is usually like a pretty good contrarian sign that, you know, this isn't a loved sector. This isn't a loved share. Maybe there's something here. That doesn't always work because I remember going to construction conferences <laughs> in 2018. From about 2012, mm. we thought, okay, now is a good, it's, you know, all the signs <laughs> are there. The construction sector is a good time to buy, trading at less than book value. And they've basically all gone to zero, yeah. not yeah. almost all. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you can sort of take these anecdotal pieces of info and it, it's a part of the puzzle. Mm. So in 2018, what you'd had is you had a lot of the, the platinum group miners were, they'd, they'd been cutting costs for years. They, they hadn't been adding new supply. And in fact, they'd been underinvesting in supply. And a lot of them had quite a lot of debt built up, which, which, which is also important. And I'll, I'll get to that. But then conversely, you know, China's economic growth, rising environmental standards in terms of most of the platinum group metals get used uh, in cars to, to reduce mm. carbon emissions effectively. So as those environmental standards were, were being raised and China was, was growing and more people there were buying cars, you had demand for these, these metals increasing a lot. So you had this great inflection point where everyone hated the sector, starting valuations are low. You have a lot of debt, you've got low costs, the basket price or the, the price of platinum is set to rise. And that just set it up for, for incredibly good performance over the next five years. Could it have been different, I guess? So Absolutely. Lonman, I guess Lonman <laughs> was on its third rights issue mm. and ended up practically going bankrupt. Yeah. Sibania ended up buying it. Yeah. But if you'd hold the listed shares, you would have had zero, I think. I think maybe the likes of Sayer, uh, say Impala, a couple of the others, if if conditions had stayed as they were for mm. another year or two, I, I suspect they, they might have had a similar effect. I mean, all of them were selling assets, looking at closing mines, looking at rights issues. But it's often in that depth of depression and chaos that you get the best buying opportunities. But you had to back the right horses. I guess that comes back to the, the star ratings again. Like yeah. Investing is a probabilistic exercise and, and, and sometimes things can turn out way worse than you expect and sometimes you can make a lot of money for your clients yep. on taking these, these risky bets. Something we do sometimes is we don't think as, as, as closely about the supply side. I always find the supply side can be quite interesting. So yep. take iron ore, for example, and we focus a lot on demand and Chinese construction and steel production. But iron ore is controlled by a few large companies that are, have been way more disciplined in the cycle than the last um, and, and have a, an ability to control supply, call it the spirit of cooperation, call it, <laughs> call it discipline, call it what you may, but, and, and that tends to, to move with demand. I mean, I guess when commodity prices are low like that, does it matter which company you buy? I mean, should you just like buy any, anything that makes platinum? Um, at some point, <laughs> Impala had the same market cap as, as Astro, right? Does it, when things are that cheap, I mean, Astro is a chicken farming business and Impala 
brings out platinum from the ground. You know, when things are that cheap, doesn't matter which company you buy. So if I can take that, I, I think it does, and it's for two reasons. So, so if you look over the last five years, the, the total return on Impala has been roughly double what, what you got on Amplat. There are kind of two main things driving that. So, so the one is Impala's starting valuation was mm. a lot lower, and then secondly, it had a lot more debt than Amplat. Those two things together, as your profitability increases, if you have a lot of debt and you, you can pay down that debt, that, that magnifies the impact to the upside if, if things go right. Conversely, if things don't go right, it's, it's often the debt that takes you out. You know, I think it does matter who you back, but it's not always linear and sometimes you have to be strategic. So, so I remember at the time I thought Amplats was attractive because its balance sheet was the least bad of the, the platinum miners. So I thought if things stay tough, mm-hmm. you know, you're still unlikely to have a rights issue, but, but if things turn out better, you should be okay. So that risk reward trade-off mm-hmm. is good, but that's not always the case, right? Yeah, so in a bull market, you often want to buy the worst company yeah. because that'll be the one with the most debt and the one with the lowest margins and the one that benefits the most from a bull market. But I wouldn't say that's a good rule of thumb, right, <laughs> to start off with. Over the very long term, you frequently get two companies in the same sector where mm. one massively outperforms the other. And I, I think definitely think it's worth spending the, the mm. time and the work to actually choose the, the better company, the most well-run company. I guess over the same period in the last five years in, in the gold mining space, I think Goldfields has almost doubled the total return of Anglo Gold. I mean, I think another thing that matters is actual are you actually improving your operations? Um, that tends to matter a bit. And can you grow production? Sometimes that, that matters as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then I guess looking at the list of shares that were doing the best in 2018 as well, it looks like it's very difficult for the the ones that did best before to carry on being the best shares. Take an example of, of Capitec or Clicks. And they still feel like very good businesses. I don't think the fundamentals have gotten that much worse. I mean, would you say buying the best shares, even though it's not a good idea? I mean, a lot of people like the quality stuff, so you just buy the best shares and hold on to them forever. I think a lot of it comes down to starting valuation. So so if you go back to 2018, it feels like an age ago, but that was the, the height of Ramaphoria, mm-hmm. right? So, so Ramaphosa just came in, the market was pricing in, you know, him succeeding in reforms, South Africa returning to stronger economic growth. And, and there was, I don't want to call it like a South African renaissance, but that, that was almost the feeling on the market. And we, we wrote a couple of, there were a couple of quarterly commentary articles and our positioning was, listen, this is looking quite optimistic for SA Inc. shares. And so the likes of Clicks, Capitec are there. And they are good businesses, but, you know, I think the starting valuations were just too optimistic. Then conversely, now I think you can say a lot of things about South Africa, but I don't think we're, you know, at the heights of, of euphoria at the moment. You know, the outlook's pretty pessimistic if you listen to most commentators and most economic analysis. So, so having gone from sort of that high to to a pretty low sentiment at the moment, and high starting valuations when you buy in, even if those are good businesses, you can still get pretty disappointing returns over the next five years. Not always, but quite often. As with anything in investing, there's no rule of thumb here. So (laughs) you definitely can't look at the best shares over the last five years and have an automatic, okay, let's either avoid these or buy them. There were times when the the best shares 
over the last five years were absolutely the ones to to keep owning. And I think mm. in the US, for example, I suspect the list in 2018 and the list today mm. probably looks quite similar. And as it happens in SA, not now, but retailers, for example, had a fantastic run from mm. 2003 till 2008 yeah. and they kept going. And you shouldn't have dismissed them just because they happened to have done well. If you were sitting in 2002 trying to think about what the potential growth could be, it almost takes quite a big imagination on the upside. I mean, one share that did surprisingly well in 2018, that probably would have been a good idea to own, was Richmond. I mean, could your imagination have imagined what, what happened since? Could, could you have seen that in, in, a, in a picture somewhere in your mind? I would like to think so. Um, we didn't, obviously. So, so Richemont in 2018 was quite a different picture to today. Mm. So at the time, the share hadn't really grown earnings for a long time. Governance concerns were similar to that. Now the company's got a control structure. It's really controlled by one family. They sort of don't care about losing money for a decade or more in some of their underperforming brands. And they had quite a poor technology strategy. And that's all just been completely overpowered by wealthy people's desire to buy jewelry. So we did not see that coming, especially in a pandemic. I would have thought with less travel, there's generally going to be like less buying of luxury goods. But Richemont's, geez, they've really benefited from the rich getting richer. Also, just yeah, watches and jewelry have both mm. just been flying. And there are very few brands as strong as theirs in the world. And that they've been a huge beneficiary from that. Is there any other sort of companies you can think of where earnings or the, the fundamentals have defied imagination <laughs> over time? I think you can probably put Capitec in that bucket. Mm. Some members of our team have been saying Capitec's a scam and it's going to blow up since maybe 2003 and they've been proven wrong so far. And, you so, know... So just to put that into context, we, <laughs> we've had historically for the longest time, I wouldn't call it a bias, but a rule of thumb against buying micro lenders. Mm. Yes. And that's worked very well for us. It's, it is it is a good rule of thumb. Yes. And Capitec is one of the few micro lenders in the world which has stayed in business. They've been prudent when they had to be prudent and they've actually used the profits to grow a very, very attractive transactional business. Yeah, and I think as most companies grow to scale, typically you see the return on equity or, or returns in general mm. trending down. And Capitec's been able to to maintain an extremely high return on equity, sort of in excess of 25% through various crises, through a tough economic environment, and, and just been able to keep doing that. What, what's been interesting is that while it's continued to perform really well, you've always had another chance to buy the share. Yeah. So it fell a lot after the Viceroy report on it came out. It fell a lot when African Bank was going bust. It fell a lot initially during the COVID pandemic. So it's been a share that's rewarded you in being patient and waiting for good buying opportunities. My take on your question, which companies have defied imagination, I would say a lot of the best performing stocks of the past five years happen to be resources companies. Yeah, yeah. And resources companies, that you, the metals, there are these demand squeezes, and you do often see them doing either very well or very badly. But in the US, there have been a lot of examples, something like NVIDIA mm -hmm. or Tesla. Jeez, they've grown earnings like the clappers, yeah, even the bigger ones like Amazon. I would not have thought 10 years ago. They, they've, they really have, on a fundamental basis, grown their earnings beautifully and performed extremely well. Mm. Peter, you made a good point on Capitec always sort of allowing you 
opportunity to buy when it falls quite a bit. I mean, your thoughts on catching falling knives. I mean, there's been a lot of shares <laughs> that have fallen significantly. I mean, there's Transaction Capital's uh, the, the, the most recent one. But uh, EOH, I mean, maybe that's a bit of a covenant one. But there's been a lot of shares that fall a lot <laughs> over a short amount of time. And maybe the fundamentals change. How, how do you feel about that? And maybe Jock to add as well. How do you generally approach those in, in, in maybe buying them in the portfolios or not? The key is to have an intrinsic value for the stock, hmm. right? If you're watching the share price and trying to like guess when it might, this might be the bottom or not, then you buy it, it falls further, then what do you do? So I think you have to have a intrinsic value. Obviously, the intrinsic value can change very quickly <laughs> as new facts come out. That's the tricky thing. And then I, would, I would say you, you got to do the work. In my experience, it has often paid just to wait. Hmm. There are very rare instances when a, a share is down, let's say, 50% in a few days. And now, you know, now is the time to jump in and, and it goes right back up again. As it happens with Capitech, there were two occasions like that. And we took advantage of both of them. But that's quite rare. Usually, it, these things take a, a while to hmm. unwind. There are definitely shares that have been that have surprised us in their ability to underperform expectations over long periods of time, and also the magnitude with which it has happened. So I was surprised looking at sort of the data and how many of the shares that were underperformers in the five years to 2018 mm -hmm. were again underperformance from 2018 to 2023. Kind of, you'd think after that already done very poorly. Earnings were low, starting valuations were low, and then they succeeded in still being poor investments for the next five years. The way I think about it is a couple of things. So I know Jock says there are no rules of thumb. I, I respectfully disagree with him. <laughs> I think the, the one for me is there's never just one cockroach. Mm. So often when there's some kind of blow up at a company, it takes time for all of that to emerge. And again, it's a good idea not to buy a full position the first day mm. because often it, you know, it takes time for more or all of the bad news to come out, especially if it's like governance issues and, and things like that. The second one is thinking quite carefully about what, what you think the positions, the right position sizes, because it's, it's very tempting. A share has fallen 50%. Now you buy a position and then it falls another 50%. But, but you've already deployed quite a bit of capital in it. So just playing along the patient game. And then the third thing I, I try and think about quite carefully is, is this a structural issue facing the company or is it actually a cyclical issue? And being honest about the prospects for turning it around and also bearing in mind, I guess, that if you are in a very tough macroeconomic environment where there's little economic growth, there's high load shedding, something like that, that makes it much more difficult to succeed with the turnaround story, mm. where if the economy is flying, you, you've just got a lot more momentum to, to feed off of. So I think those are kind of the, the three things I think about in terms of catching falling knives. Yeah, those are good points. PPC is one of the ones yeah. which mm. they, it had a very bad five years to 2018 and it's had <clears> another very bad five years. And it used to be a cyclical company. Mm. I had a note in my diary. You know, think carefully about buying PPC. I think it was about in 2018, you know, which I'd put there a year or two ahead because you could just see this is the the cycle usually goes. And in this case, the cycle didn't repeat. Yeah. So, Peter, you know the cement industry better than us. What's your take on what went wrong there? It's been a tough industry in that you've had persistently weak demand, which has just kept going for a lot longer than I think most people were expecting. 
you've had imports coming in and there's there's always been this promise of, of tariffs which would assist the South African cement producers a lot, but but that's never materialized. I mean, it's it's been on the horizon for many years now. And then the other thing is you've effectively got too many players in the cement yeah. industry with too much spare capacity. And because of this cost structure of running a cement plant, you're, you're almost always incentivized to, to keep producing. Yeah. So no one takes out supply and and as a result you've just had this pain trade that's that's kept going for years and years you had this bright moment during COVID where you know people were in lockdown and they had some excess savings and and suddenly like diy cement demand went through the roof and and these shares rallied and it was this this beautiful moment in the sun and then it all unraveled you know the next year and and they all went back to sort of trading at multi-year lows I guess there then the question is, okay, so structurally, how likely are things to change? Mm. How likely is supply to start coming out? And you, you see some consolidation and some, some activities in the M&A happening in the sector, but it's, it, it still remains just a very, very tough operating environment. Yeah, I guess it's one of those where thinking about the supply is, is again, quite interesting and, 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 and the ability of supply to leave the market. Sometimes it's not that obvious that just because prices are low, supply can leave the market. Yeah. Maybe these are, these are all the points people were making about platinum in 2018. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe a similar one on that. Like, say paper and packaging. I mean, what are your views there? And I, I guess again, supply probably matters quite a bit there as well. I think paper and packaging is quite a quite a broad church. So paper in, in most grades is sort of in secular decline, but because in in a large number of those grades supply has actually been falling faster than demand's been mm. falling. You've had a number of companies actually generating really good returns in, in paper. So it's a very counterintuitive one because people would look at paper and think, oh dear, like who'd want to buy a paper <laughs> mill? Like, you know, everyone's using less, less paper as the There's world's There's more than 10 advisor. pages of printed paper on the desk. Right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's maybe not, not a good example. But, but, you know, because the supply has been falling faster than the demand, you, you can still make very good returns mm. there. Packaging sort of been the the opposite, where as people order more things online and the take a lock box that your your package comes in, you know you need packaging paper to make that mm. box. And also, as there's been a transition due to environmental considerations away from plastics and especially single use plastics towards paper packaging, which is more sustainable, more friendlier for the environment. You know, there's been a lot of demand growth there. But what's also happened is you know, there's been a lot of supply growth. So packaging itself has actually also been a, a relatively tough industry, especially over the last year and a half. Mm. You know, supply growth has, has outstripped demand growth in that vein. So it's often like quite counterintuitive. It's not just what's growing quickly or and you should invest there. That's actually not necessarily a good strategy. So a thing like NAMPAC, right? So how do you, you think about shares that almost have always felt like a bit of a value trap so they they always look cheap but they always Not stay always cheap. there was a time when nampak was 40 rand a share and things were flying and it looked like a great growth south african growth company it must have been before both me and peter joined <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i mean going even going back even further nampak was one of south africa's most prestigious industrials mm. so maybe i guess on on the checklist or rules of thumb is there things you can think about to avoid value traps, things that just keep getting cheaper and already cheap. I mean, Brates is an example. I mean, five years ago, probably was already looking a bit cheap. And 
uh, kept falling. So I think it comes down to one of Peter's points earlier. Mm. Is it cyclical or secular? Is there underlying growth or is this thing just falling? Mm. And then a, a lot of the times when it does go wrong, there's also poor governance. We do a lot of work on remuneration. And when you meet with the remuneration committee, and it's very clear that they're not really interested in paying the CEO for excellent performance. They're interested in paying the CEO no matter what happens to the underlying business. Then that's a real worrying sign for a company. And I would say almost all the kind of industrial companies that are done very badly, not all of them, but many of them, we can go back and say, yeah, that happened. It was clear that the CEO wasn't interested in improving the products. He was interested in getting what he could from a, a sinking ship, you know, salvaging whatever furniture he could. I completely agree with Jock. I think there's one thing I'd add, though, and that's debt. If you don't have debt, you've got a lot more breathing room to turn things around. You've got less time on the clock. If you do make a mistake or it doesn't work initially or it mm -hmm. takes a bit longer, that, that's not fatal. But, but if you have a lot of debt, it just amplifies whatever yeah. weakness or, or mistakes are made. And often then that forces you to have a rights issue, which mm -hmm. might permanently destroy value or you, the banks squeeze you and they force you to take more funding at exorbitant rates or, or, or whatever. If there is a lot of debt, it just makes it so much more difficult to, to, to actually turn it around. But then maybe touching on what we spoke about earlier in the, the platinum shares, if there is a lot of debt and they succeed in turning <laughs> it around, you know, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. And, and that amplifies the, the returns to the upside if it works out. Debt can sometimes be a symptom of how far are you in the process. Yeah. If you have a company that's in secular decline, well, at the start, the company often will have cash. And then after five more years of secular decline, then it has debt. Yeah. A value trap, in my understanding, is a stock that's on a, a low PE ratio, the price to earnings ratio, the price divided by the most recent earnings. But it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. earnings are going to fall. You shouldn't buy it. So it looks like a, a traditional valuation metrics looks cheap, but actually, if <laughs> you do the work, it's not cheap. I mean, another thing that's probably usually useful to look at is, is the ability of the business to generate free cash flow. But also like real free cash flow. So cash flow that they can actually extract um, that's not stuck in countries, that's actually able to be paid out or to be deployed. I think that that's quite important. Mm -hmm. And also the how where does the debt sit? So like a mismatch in debt can be a very risky position to be in. So if you have dollar debt, but you have businesses in, in Angola, Nigeria, where you, you struggle to get cash outs, then I think that can turn out very bad very quickly. Yeah. One for you, Jacques, you, you cover the, the JSE, so you look at, at, at that business. I mean, a lot of people have been worried about delistings, and I mean, there's been a lot of M&A. So one of the best shares in the 2018 list was PSG, which is which has subsequently delisted. De I mean, do you think that's a problem? I mean, is there an opportunity around there? Um, how do you think about, about that, both for JSE as a business and, and I guess, for investors? Yeah, so JAC Limited, the company that runs the stock exchange, listings actually doesn't, they don't matter to the JAC's valuation. What matters is the really the top 40 companies, probably only the top 10 companies, and how many buyers and sellers are there? How actively are people trading those shares? And as long as those stay on the market, you know, the fact that 10 small caps have delisted, it really makes no difference to their earnings. They take a tiny little fraction of, of every trade. And really, it's sort of not special the other big ones. So something that isn't great for them is when all the foreigners sell their South African shares and they're sort of they're out the market, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not coming back. Then the trade in those shares is, well, now it's just South Africans trading with each other. Mm -hmm. There is just lower volumes. Okay? We more agreed with each other on what the valuations should be. The stock exchange is on a low PE multiple. 
And I don't know if that's driven by the sentiment around M&A or mergers and acquisitions and delistings. I think it's really driven because the business has performed very poorly. Revenue is really a function of, of mm -hmm. trading, which hasn't been great. And they've grown costs a lot over the last five years. So their margin's been declining. And this could be one of those, which it, it's really a high quality business. It's a monopoly in South Africa and should be doing a, a high ROE, but and it looks like it's on a lower multiple, but investors are worried that, well, if earnings keep falling, then it's a value trap. I think the delistings have been a, it's been interesting the impact that's had on our, our clients' portfolios. A couple of the delistings, the companies that delisted have been good shares that, that we've held in the portfolio. So I'm thinking the likes of Peregrine's there, PSG's there, there was a big outperformer, uh, Pioneer was there, Clover was there. So, mm -hmm. so we've, we've definitely held companies that ended up you know, being bought out one way or another and then delisting for, for let's call it good reasons. Uh, conversely, there have also been mistakes we've made. So, so maybe likes of a Basil Reed or or a Group Five, where it's it, those were shares in the portfolios that ended up delisting, but because the businesses went bust eventually. Just from a shareholder return perspective, it's it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. Mm. I think the one thing is obviously to what extent does that shrink our investable universe or not? But even there, I, I think we, we still have a lot of choice. We still have a lot of opportunity for diversification, for, for stock picking opportunities. Maybe our, our imagination again. <laughs> Let's get back to that. Um, <laughs> if you have to think about the next five years and, and what is a like, likely shares or likely businesses to be on that list of <laughs> the top performers in, in, in the next five years, maybe to start with you, Jacques, do you have any, let's say, things you'd look for and, and, and any shares you think are likely likely to be there. I'll preface that question by saying we don't sit around trying to find what are going to be the top 10 shares over the next five years. Because often, like we were saying earlier, these are, can be the junk companies that just happen to have a good tailwind and they benefit from inputs or something like that. We're really trying to get at companies that are going to do a reasonable rate of return at a reasonable level of risk. But then to answer your question, what could be the ones that do really well? So there are a lot of SA Inc. stocks that where the sentiment is really poor. I remember looking at these companies in 2013, and back then, a normal PE ratio for really not a great quality SA Inc. business was about 16 times earnings. Sure. And now you can, <laughs> I mean, now a normal multiple for these companies is eight times earnings, and you can get them for five sometimes. So if there's a change of sentiment towards South Africa, mm. the really bombed out SA Inc. stocks could do extremely well, but both from a, a re-rating, but also just, you know, the economy is, these things feed off each other. So as sentiment improves, more people invest in projects, people renovate their houses, mm. everyone's all of a sudden, I think the economy starts growing, the businesses fundamentally then also do well. So you get higher PE ratio on higher earnings. Our listeners might accuse me of having a very large imagination when I say this, but these things happen. <laughs> and then I think the gold stocks, these are some of the best stocks of the last five yeah. years, but the gold price is not anchored to anything. And there's some scenario in the future in which people want a real safe haven when developed world debt has, you know, acts the same way as emerging market debt is currently acting. And people start losing faith in whether large governments can really service their, mm. their debt. You know, in that scenario, again, I'm using my imagination. 
But the gold price could go up a lot and that'll benefit the gold companies enormously. So from my side, if I was to use my imagination, I think history tells us if, if you want spectacular outsized returns and, and you're not too worried about risks because that's not what you asked, right? You want low starting valuations, you want high operating leverage, and you want high financial leverage. If you add those three together, just mathematically, that's how you get the, the highest returns, provided the company doesn't blow up in the meantime. So, so if you look at it that way, I think to Jock's point, there are a whole bunch of SA Inc. shares that probably tick that bucket. So maybe something in likes of Cup is there, Brait's probably there, but maybe at a sectoral level, mm-hmm. I think the property property shares are there. I mean, a lot of them are trading at a sort of 40, 50% discount to their underlying assets. They have a lot of debt and also their cost structures are typically, they also have a lot of operating leverage. Now for sure, some of them, aren't going to make it and and you can see that sort of playing out already in the sector but but if things do turn i i can easily imagine five years from now how you know that would have been the sector to own but it's very very difficult to know whether it's going to turn and also which ones to back there so that's the one preface and then if i don't use that sort of structural hat and i start looking at specific shares i, th- I think there are two shares that stand out for me as potentially being at low inflection points in terms of you know the industry has been under pressure for whatever reason and i I think there's an inflection point coming and they're they're spending capital on on projects that i think should should generate very good returns and they're the likes of mondi and ab inbev i think is there ab inbev's starting valuation is maybe quite a bit higher but Mm -hmm. but but it's also i think it does have pretty good growth potential and then Mondi, I guess, is something we've we've added to the portfolios over the last year. But but there, it's it's trading at a very low valuation versus its history. It's spending capital at very good assets, and and the packaging industry has been under severe pain over, over the last year. And I think it's it's close to the bottom. But then Sapi, surely, if you're looking for a, for a big winner over five years, <laughs> sure. But that that's the the question then is okay. Sapi's got lower quality assets, and it's got more debt. So that's more upside, risk. <laughs> more upside for sure, but also more risk. So that's the question is, okay, where on that risk reward spectrum do you mm-hmm. want to be? Like how, how much risk do you want to take, take knowing? And I, I'd fully agree. I think Sappy's got more potential upside than Mondi, but, but there's also a higher risk of yeah. ruin. Um, and I guess that's where the analysis comes in. If you can get comfort that Sappy's not going to go bust or not going to need the right, the right issue or something like that, seems like a very obvious buy. Yeah, I mean, a rights issue is also not the end of the world. Mm, like, yeah. we, we are happy to put more money into a, a business that's going through a tough time if we think that business is, you know, has real value. Mm. I'm going to challenge Jock on his rule of thumbs <laughs> point. I think there's a second rule of thumb, which Duncan, our, our chief investment officer, always reminds us of, which is always, you make a lot of money on the second rights issue. <laughs> um, and I think he refers to Supergroup there during the financial crisis where... And the second rights issue, if you, mm. if you followed your rights, you made a lot of money. I'm not sure whether that's always the case, but I, I do think there's a good lesson there saying, you know, the first rights issue isn't necessarily the only one. But I take Jock's point, you know, it isn't necessarily the end of the world. Mm. And you've seen a lot of companies do really well with rights issues. As Peter's illustrated, I shouldn't have said rule of thumb. There are no, there are no, there are no rules, but there are rules of thumb. Yeah. <laughs> I think my imagination shares a bit more boring but it it fits Peter's three rules <laughs> so so one of them is the operational leverage so shares British American tobacco 
doesn't feel as risky, but operational leverage definitely. It has a tax structure where small increases in prices can have an outsized increase in revenue. Definitely some financial leverage. It's, yeah. It has quite a bit of gearing. And what was that one? Low, Low starting, starting valuation, leverage. sort of mid to slightly above a mid single digits PE multiple. So you can easily see uh, if, if, if for some reason the perception in investors' minds change, if it starts to be valued the same as other staples, double, triple your money, possibly, if you have a, a big imagination. Um, and, and, I, and I think people are starting to, might eventually start to understand that the new generation products, so the things that people are switching cigarettes for that are less harmful to consumers, could be as, at least as profitable as, as cigarettes. And if, if, if that's the case, then I think you can see quite a lot of upside there. Then if you really want to have a big imagination, I think an interesting one is, is multi-choice. Obviously, very difficult to watch TV when, when you don't have electricity most of the day. But they're spending quite a bit on Showmax. And, and if, if Showmax can get to the numbers they think it can, so a billion-dollar revenue business, low 20 to mid-20s margins, um, you have a betting business that grew 50% in dollars last year. Um, not big, but it's going to launch a super sport bet soon, and then that's going to be quite big as well. And then you have more electrification. So you have these, these, these few things that, if you have an imagination, if they go right, can actually have a lot of upside in the share that's actually fallen quite a bit because people are a bit worried about the shorter-term load-shedding risks and the Naira devaluing. So that's probably one of my... I can see the, the sort of the, the, blue, the blue skies, the blue sky, yeah, blue sky potential <laughs> in that. Another one. Just, you can also see the gray sky potential. Oh, with it. <laughs> <The> rainy, <laughs> you always sky. need that for a, to set up a big one. <laughs> yeah. And then another one which looks expensive and, and, and could be expensive on, on, on valuation, but is, is outsurance, right? So looking at shares, if you're just operating in South Africa, sometimes you struggle to see the real upside. Um, whereas they have a, a reasonably big business in Australia, which is a much bigger market than South Africa, insurance-wise. And they're going to launch in Ireland, which is similar size to South Africa. Their management team has executed incredibly well historically. Um, so if they can make a success of those, it's actually real upside because it's bigger markets in South Africa. So you can see sort of Blue Sky's earnings growing quite a bit. Whether the valuation is rich or not, that's a different question. But on the fundamentals, I think you could see a lot of upside there potentially. Thanks to Jacques and Peter for joining me, and thank you for listening to the podcast. We delve into a range of winners and losers, or reflecting on what has led to their success and failure. We also chatted about some of the long-term trends shaping the opportunity set today, and how we can use those learnings of the last 50 years to help identify the next winners. To share your thoughts on this episode, you can send an email to info at alangray.co.za. This podcast is available wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to be notified of new episodes. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the T's and C's, visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Sipasitle Zwane from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume, and thank you again for listening.